I have always said there were going to be four or five big companies in the world building autonomous vehicles and it, that were serious. And the consolidations, I think three or four episodes ago, we just talked about this. Mm-hmm. Someone said it was going to take six months. I think it could take six weeks. Hello, and welcome to the Autonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, Senior Transportation Reporter with TechCrunch. I'm Alex Roy, uh, host of the No Parking Podcast and Secret Projects at Argo AI. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Damon Laverance of uh, Damon Corp. Nice, Damon Corp. Before we get started, my friends, Edward. Last night, I was on Twitter, and I found a thread of Tesla fans who felt that you had been overly harsh. (laughs) And one of them said that he unsubscribed from the Atonicast because he did not want to support you. So I responded by saying, hey, Atonicast is Switzerland. We have many competing views, yada, yada. You really should should, uh, check it out. Do you feel that you were unfair to them, Ed? on Twitter last night. I, I no. I mean, I, let's be clear. What I did was I, I did what I do basically every day, which is read the Tesla forums just to see what's going on. Um, and there was a thread where a bunch of people, like six plus people reported that, that the back seats were being installed unevenly. They were all, these are all people who own on model wise. Um, and they were all, very clear that they they saw this as a problem. This wasn't just like, so I had people telling me on Twitter, you know, so I shared them. And so all I did was I sh- literally, I shared a link to this forum and a couple of photos. And like, like the fact that I am the bad guy for that yeah. is just really show, says a lot about, about this, this culture. It also says a lot about you. It's, it's <laughs> like r- literally shooting the messenger. Like mm. I did not buy these. I did not make these cars. I did not buy these cars. Um, I did not post these pictures and stories online. I simply posted them to my account. That was my part in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. If that makes like, if I'm the bad guy because like for sharing something that other people post online, like rethink things. And if you're not sharing good news, then you're part of the problem of killing yeah, the killing the, the planet. News flash, and this is a great segue into what we actually. <laughs> Wait, no, I've got more to today, talk about. No, I have there's more. not a lot of good news in, in the automotive slash not true. tech space. Not days. true. And he, I've okay. got good news. So, uh, so it, you all remember like before coronavirus that the EPA came out and said that the Porsche Taycan Turbo, the middle model, has a range rating of 201 miles. Right. And the Turbo S is 194. And of course, you know, a Tesla Model S performance is 350 and a a long range is 370. And so I went recently and I I took a Porsche Taycan Turbo press car and I'm like, what can this thing actually do driven normally? And I got 295 miles out of it. Not bad. What does driving it normally mean? Uh, Well, I put it in range mode. And which limits you to 70 miles an hour. And I just drove it normally. I drove it uh, LA Phoenix and back. And let me tell you, it did not take any effort to get to actually indicated range was 297. But what I'm getting at, and this is interesting, is that the trip computers, the, the you know, electrical vehicle range estimations built into the cars very widely 
in I think assumptions and what they display. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So in a in a Tesla, I think they're they're always very optimistic. And I've driven in, at normal speeds. My Model Three, I if it if it indicates three oh nine miles at a hundred percent, there I've never at, in any driving style, however conservative, ever gotten three hundred miles out of that car. And the mileage estimate range remaining always drops faster than my odometer uh, goes up. In the Taycan, and I thought this was fascinating, it, in range mode, it goes down like it's a one-to-one. You drive a mile, you lose a mile. In fact, oh, wow. in fact, as I got up uh, further into my trip at, at 70 miles an hour, you know, which I put on you know, cruise control, the rain, uh, remaining range went up. At the end, it started at a 260 uh, when I charged at the Electrify America station. At the end... It showed combined about two, actually two ninety seven. I think two ninety five is re- is realistic. Alex, are you saying that Tesla might overpromise and underdeliver a little bit? What is I'm that, saying is, is I'm I don't want to go after like Tesla. It. I don't want to go after Tesla. What I do want to go after is Porsche. I mean, we all know that Por- the Taycan is very inefficient given the battery size. That's a fact. But there's a separate thing going on here, which is that whoever is responsible for the trip computer and range estimations is being really conservative, um, really conservative. We also know that the EPA didn't actually test, uh, doesn't actually test all the cars that come in, uh, the EVs. They, in some cases, just take the manufacturer's word for it. And a few days ago, uh, a Porsche Taycan Long Range, according to German magazine, did, I think, like 370, 160, 365 miles, 370 miles. And I haven't verified that yet, but I'm curious to know more. So. Anyway, that's my good news of the week. So. Okay. Since we are completely blowing up what we plan to talk about, just we so time. listeners know, we had a, a very specific plan that Alex then blew up the moment he opened his mouth. What? Since we're way off topic, um, did you notice that in spite of our warnings in our last discussion episode, Someone did take advantage of the empty streets of Midtown Manhattan and took their Gambala Mirage GT out, <sighs> there, and then mean, and then crashed it multiple times. Alex, what what do you say to the rumors that this person uh, released a manifesto saying he was personally inspired by Alex Roy? He was not. And was trying to emulate <laughs> him, and like, he was actually a close personal uh, friend uh, of yours. So to be clear, I know the person who was, who crashed the car. Uh, his name is Ben Chen. This is the part where we all gasp in shock. So we're not friends, friends. I mean, we don't like hang out together. Um, you know, like he, the founders of the gumball or something. No. Well, no. yes and no. So uh, some people, some stories have, have claimed that he was a founder of the gold rush rally, uh, which is not true. Um, the founder of the gold rush rally uh, is Amy Shackelford, who's one of the few female founders in, in the rally sector. And, um, there's a several other investors involved. Uh, Ben, you know, he's promoted it. He's been involved. Uh, I don't know much about those details, but he's not the founder. Uh, secondly, Ben, um, is famous for having owned and crashed a lot of supercars. This is not his first incident. Um, there are others and Matt Farah on his Twitter, uh, mentioned that and several people posted pictures of a crash Lamborghini and some other crashes. Does he just not know how to drive very well? I'm confused how you crash that many vehicles. Is, is it a question of having more money than sense? Some, well, or is alcohol involved? Uh, 
I don't know what caused the earlier crashes and I'm not defending his behavior in any way. Um, uh, it is ironic that people drive cross country every year, faster and faster for 50 years. And this never, this has not happened, but that people drive 10 blocks from home in Manhattan and wipe out. So clearly we have an education problem and a licensing problem. Oh man. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? Yeah. Uh, the fact that he tried to get away from the scene shows some suboptimal judgment. <laughs> suboptimal? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean yeah. uh, Matt Farah pointed out that there are only four Gambala modified Porsche Carrera GTs in the world. And that uh, that vehicle is recognized as being parked in Manhattan where Ben Chen lives and that it's spot all over town and so I thought there were 25 total. There were only four. I think there might be 25 Carrera GTs lurking in the oh, United States, okay. but mm-hmm. a Gembala modified car is very unusual. Right. Yeah. Yui Gembala, and this is maybe for a different podcast, but let's entertain the Autonicast crowd. Yui Gembala in the 80s was one of several companies. Another one was called Koenig um, that specialized in another – well, actually, another one was called Strosek. And these were f- the first really expensive – aftermarket mod shops for supercars and Gimbala is famous for being really expensive and really tacky and Yui Gimbala um ended up assassinated yeah, a murder in like South bitch. Africa yeah so so my longtime friend and 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 former collaborator Bertel Schmidt almost went into business with Yui Gimbala <laughs> knew him personally um apparently says or or suspects uh, some pretty deep involvement in some fairly sub rosa activities of some kind. <laughs> um, so he said he's famously, he was like, the first time I met him, I was sure he was a pimp because <laughs> he just like had like long blonde hair and like this gold chain. Anyway, basically, yeah, like I think what Alex's point here is that Gambala is pretty much reserved for the very elite of uh, poor taste and wealth internationally there are very few people who have like such extreme concentrations of of money and bad taste that they take a career gt and decide this could be more flashy and and vulgar and actually if i may read from the wiki yua gambala went missing in south africa in 2010 he was found dead they suspected it was a result of a money laundering operation gone Mm -hmm. bad the killer was found guilty yada yada um three others were convicted the mastermind is suspected to have been Czech criminal fugitive Radovan Krejcir. But Gimbala, the company, is back, back in action right now. And just to be really clear, they're the most egregious of all aftermarket companies. Like if you own one of these, if you're not a criminal, uh, you have the taste of one, um, <laughs> is Mansori, um, yes. which is a Mansori. And at one point, uh, when I the way I became friends with Matt Farah was I pitched him the idea of a Mansori Driving Theater 3000, a show <laughs> only about market mods. And it, anyway, but they would have sued us. We never launched that show. Um, do you do yourself a favor and and Google Bertel Schmidt uh, uh, Gambala if you want to read more about this. Bertel's written some really entertaining stuff about this. Wow, well, it's a, a Bertel Schmidt story does not involve Toyota or Tesla. <laughs> Amazing. The, the, the man has re- lived a rich life. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, well, now let's get back on track. 
And now for something completely different. Yeah. Well, that was, that was the, the like entertaining opener that Alex kicked us off on. And and now we're going to get back to the harsh realities. You've had your amuse-bouche. It's time for your veggies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Here's your, here are your Brussels sprouts, which can be quite delicious if cooked properly, but. Oh man, I love a good Brussels sprout. So, (laughs) so I, I tweeted about this, uh, uh, the other day and and I think it, it seemed to resonate a little bit so I thought we would discuss it but um you know we've discussed on the show a number of times in fact we did a great episode with Celita Reynolds um and um uh the folks from Deloitte uh, a while back about this about sort of this this tension between private and public sector in cities and sort of the the troubled relationship between mobility tech players some of whom um Uber and Bird and Lime and others kind of been, you know, seen as these barbarian invaders, just kind of showing up and doing what they want. Uh, and cities who, you know, are trying to manage their transit and 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 infrastructure uh and and having a tough time with these relationships. And um and what's fascinating is is that the companies that have been the biggest problem for cities are the ones that have been sort of the most scale focused, you know, blitz scaling kind of companies. So again, Bird and Uber and 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 companies of that that ilk. Um, and those companies now are some of the ones that are in the biggest trouble because scaling takes money and they're most they're basically not profitable and they're having a harder time getting money than they used to and and it's just it's just a tougher time for them and so so my theory is is that you know this is a great time for cities who want to take back control and sort of reboot the relationship with these companies and sort of get them get away from sort of this sort of wild force that they have to try and contain and sort of get them more into a, a more traditional vendor partner type of role. Um, right now is a really great time for them to do that because cities have kind of more consistent revenue with uh, you know taxation and things of that nature. It does go up and down based on the economy, but it's more consistent than you know trend-based VC, right? Uh, or sort of the, the, the trend-chasing VC crowd. Um, and so my theory is that they have leverage. I don't know. I mean, do you guys... Do you guys agree with that? Do you think that's um, a yes. reasonable? Yes and no. Um, so you use the the barbarian storming the gate analogy. And so I, I see this as the barbarians have left and the city is kind of now the people who are, who are remaining there are left to pick up the pieces and each city is going to be, you know, tasked with different opportunities, but also different, um, challenges, usually money resources. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, we're seeing mass transit, public transit just get decimated in a lot of areas, ridership completely dropping. Also knowing that it's a money suck and knowing that eventually we're going to need to get back to being able to use mass transit so that people can have access to getting from point A to point B. We've talked about that sort of, is that a basic human right or not? Um, on the shared bicycle scooter piece, I do think that there is a lot of opportunity to do what uh, you kind of had talked to um, and, and been tweeting about um, that's happening in Portland to sort of take over some pieces and rebuild it. The question is, how are they going to do that? Are they going to recapture streets? Um, are they going to have the resources to really do it? well or are they going to do it sort of piecemeal picking and choosing and it's really just a spot saver for a year from now when everything goes back to normal 
So I see these like very clear opportunities, but I also, it's very obvious that they have some other huge challenges, mostly around public transit and funding that. And then what it's going to look like, you know, six months from now, how are they going to get riders back into buses and, you know, the BART and things like that. No, I mean, this has been a really good opportunity to just kind of pause what's going on in cities right now, right? Just to have this opportunity, which never happens, right? To kind of everything stopped and maybe now is a good opportunity to reevaluate. The problem is, of course, everybody that's involved in this decision-making is heads down on dealing with COVID, right? So everybody's focused on that right now. And there probably isn't a lot of excess bandwidth available for people to start thinking about these other solutions right now. Have you guys... Looked at uh, Jesse Halfon's Twitter lately. Uh, I just dropped a link in the in the in the chat thread. He posted uh, some data from Transit app, which shows that transit usage is down seventy five percent. But that unless before the lockdowns are lifted, real solutions, alternatives are deployed, it's going to jump back right back to where it was previously. Do you agree? I think. Damon brought up a really interesting, well, so first of all, Kirsten is right that there's so much uncertainty around how, what this recovery is going to look like when it does happen, um, particularly in terms of, you know, car usage. Um, it's also something that's been discussed a lot on Twitter recently, but Damon brings up a really good point. And I think it gets to the heart of, of my theory. Um, and, and it's, it's a really good critique, I would say, of my theory, which is that, you know, in theory, a crisis is the best time to make structural changes Mm -hmm. right uh things have stopped things have frozen up things aren't working it's a great time to lay the foundation for the next phase of growth and 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 you know this is the time to do that in practice though you know that rarely happens and it's because in the middle of a crisis you know no one's thinking about the long term people are thinking about about short term what are we going to do tomorrow what are we going to do to get things back in two weeks in a month in two months um, and so I think that's the tension here, right? Is, is you know, and, and so I think if anything, that's kind of my theory was more to sort of prod people into hopefully keeping an eye on the on the long term, um, because certainly, like you know, when it comes to the auto industry, which I covered very extensively in the last downturn, two thousand eight, nine, ten, um, you know, a lot of my critique of sort of the bailout and stuff that happened there was like, look, you know. These companies are struggling for reasons beyond just this financial crisis. Um, there are some deep structural issues. And, and also, by the way, you know, I mean, things are changing and we do have an opportunity to do some new things and, and move in new directions. And kind of what ended up happening was that that opportunity was squandered. Um, and, and it was just sort of like the need to prop things up in the short term overcame any sort of long-term strategic considerations. And, and yeah, like there's definitely a huge risk that that's, what's going to happen now too, but. Isn't the need to prop things up in the short term, the entire history of transit build out in American cities? Yeah, pretty much. And so I'm wondering, so, so here's, here's what I, I kind of hope and I think might happen, but it's not going to necessarily be a, a visible trend across the U S or globally, but in pockets. We've seen as a result of short-term thinking and dealing with the crises, city officials, transit authorities having to modify or change the way public transit works or is cleaned or is, you know, basic operations. So buses, for example, people loading from the back instead of the front, which in other models has shown that that actually is more efficient anyways, but it's being done in some cities because 
of reducing the potential of infecting a driver. Having more automated pay systems. Or in Portland, um, Ed, you mentioned the city experimenting and lowering the price to get people to use its uh, city-owned bike share program. Yeah. I think cities are going to find that they're going to do some of these short-term things. And maybe what my hope is, and it might be a little optimistic, that someone at each city council or each transit authority is going to say, hey, that actually unexpectedly worked really well. Maybe we're on to something here. And then once things calm down, having the foresight to sort of continue on those. But again, it's not like we're going to sit back a year from now and go, yep, every city did this thing. Every single city, you know, has seized on the power. I will that they that they actually have. I think we are already seeing the power that they had um, and exhibiting it a year or two ago because post ride hailing, no city really wanted to go through that again with scooters. So they were already becoming aware of the power they had. Now is sort of a, a new and different phase to sort of, like Damon said, sit back and maybe take a breath and see what works, what doesn't work, and then restart. Yeah. And I think just the Portland example, so people know, basically what happened was, um, so between the end of February and the end of March, scooter rides in Portland dropped 99%. Um, and yeah, and uh, I think line pulled out completely. Um, and basically what they've done is just for the next month, um, they just announced it recently, um, for the next month, they've dropped uh, the prices of this existing docked bike share program, like a lot of cities have. Uh, from $5 sign up and 10 cents a minute to 10 cents sign up and a penny a minute. Um, so a pretty dramatic price cut. And I think what that does is it's, I think it's an, it's an, I think w- what I like about it is that it does seem to sort of bring together the short term and the, and the long term um, opportunities because in the short term, right, it gives people a way to get around that doesn't require them to share a bus with other people who might, who might pass the infection along. Um, but it also is an opportunity because we're in this weird sort of like abnormal moment. Um, it gives people to, an opportunity to try something that they might have otherwise not tried. It's an existing infrastructure. It doesn't require a new partnership or new company or new hardware or anything. It's all stuff that's there. They just drop the price and they're hoping that people will try it now because things are just kind of weird right now and people are doing their lives have changed in fundamental ways. And so maybe there's an opportunity to get people to try something like it. And even when things return to normal, continue to use it. It's a gamble and it's hard to make gambles in this environment, but I I think it's one worth making. What I would like to see is what happened in New York last year where 14th Street became just the busway, Mm -hmm. no private vehicles. I would like to see that multiplied by 50X in New York City. Like every third street is pedestrians. Every other avenue is pedestrian only and see what happens. Um, you know, people need to get out of the house and they can't show social distance unless they're given space. And when this is over, I think we might see people may not want back what they had before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That'll be the most interesting thing is to see how people adjust. Um, but also to see how companies adjust, you know, just to folk, to, to shift the focus a bit to the limes and birds and all these other companies um, what's going to happen to them? I mean, do you see them becoming a better partner to cities or even existing? Like a, a year from today, 
if we we get together again, where will these scooter companies be? I mean, I think that there'll still be scooters. I just wonder what companies will be running them. Yeah, I think it's, I I mean, I think the obvious question is which ones are really going to survive more than anything else. Yeah. What was the, there's an author and somebody tells me that Damon is probably a fan of this author. Uh, Somebody just wrote something on Medium saying that uh, a just-in-time society that where yes. everything is just in time mm-hmm. people as people as assets and manufacturing inventory is uh, that a society that is too efficient is not ready for black swan events and the way it treats people and its shortage of goods when things go bad and the way it treats people when things go wrong is um not optimal for a healthy society that a, a degree of inefficiency has to be built into account for things you can't measure. Right. Human feelings, human error. Yeah. And I, 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 I think that if a scooter company is based in a city and wants, they're more likely to survive in that city. If they have an office there, people work there and have relationships with that city. But right. I think the further the satellites are from the home office, the fewer people that are employed on the ground, the less chance they are, to, not just to survive, even if they, they can make a case for it, but socio-politically survive because the locals would need to support local culture and, and, and employment. Yeah. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So I think this is why I'm kind of curious to see um, what happens to companies like Via. Um, So we all remember Chariot, which Ford bought and then has since shuttered, which was this on-demand shuttle um, ride service, but Via is also one and they've managed to survive. And also they just raised like $400 million. Um, they're valued now at like 2.25 billion, but they're interesting in that I, I spoke to the CEO recently and he was saying, you know, initially what they really wanted to do is just sell the software to cities to mm-hmm. be the platform, but no city was interested. Mm-hmm. Um, so then they ended up creating essentially what a chariot is, which was, you know, this on-demand dynamic routing. Um, and they launched in New York and uh, D.C. and Chicago. But then they used all that data to perfect their platform, basically had to beg cities to even do a pilot. And they did it for free in Austin. And since then has taken off. So that's now become their partnerships. Part of their business is the bigger piece. What yeah. they've found is that cities are realizing, Oh, not only because fixed route busing 
can be a money pit for some t- for some um, cities. It also can mean that you create these transportation deserts in areas where low-income workers can't even get. So if you have a city-run um, shuttle service, so this platform allows cities to run this um, these these shuttle services. What they're finding is that now the platform can be changed right now to deal with emergency services. So it's easier to shift and change it because of the underlying platform to, okay, we're not taking regular workers around. Let's completely change it in a couple of days. Let's focus just on healthcare workers. And so I think when it's a city owned property, they have a lot more power and flexibility to make those decisions quickly. And so I kind of wonder if that's going to be the model with maybe even scooters where the limes and the birds of the world go more into the software side and, and, you know, you know, skip the hardware side, or maybe companies like tortoise are going to be better off than lime or bird. What I think you're describing is that what a city partnership brings to the table is stability. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's been missing, particularly in micromobility. You've had sort of hyper growth and then crashing. You've had this like fruit fly life cycle thing. Um, that we've seen actually a number of times now in micromobility uh, in China, first with bike share and, and now in the U.S. and, and elsewhere. Um, and and I think this gets so. So as you were talking, I was just thinking about our our most recent episode, actually, um, the one right before this one, which I highly recommend you listen to, uh, where we talked to Allison Malik. Um, and she talked about how, you know, if you have partnerships with cities um, and or uh you know, sort of insta- uh, uh, like a contract with a with an employer where you're providing sort of almost in-house person, you know, mobility logistics. Um, those set contracts, they don't, you can't take those to a VC and say, look, we're going to just grow like crazy and we're going to be this 100Xer and, and you know, we're going to make up for all your dumb investments. You know, you, you, it doesn't work for that kind of pitch, but it offers a stability to go to like debt financing and say, listen, like, you know, this isn't, we're not saying this is going to be some crazy scale, you know, thing that's going to take over the world, but we have this contract in place. We have this partner that's going to find a way to use our services, whether that's in personal mobility with their transit system, whether it's the other kinds of logistical things, needs that cities have that Kirsten was just describing, you know, this is a deep partnership and it's going to be lasting and sustaining and we're going to be making this much money and here's our revenue and here's how we can make the, you know, debt financing work. It's less sexy but it allows these things to work. And frankly, I don't think most of these companies really, I think one of the things we've learned over the last couple of years is that whether it's autonomous or, or, or micromobility or whatever, that simply scaling before you really understand the business you're even in can be a real pitfall. And so maybe this more conservative traditional mode of, of government and, and enterprise partnerships, debt financing rather than VC financing and sort of like, let's take a couple years to to work with this and, and have something that's solid and lasting that we can then build on and scale down the road. I hope that to me seems like the reasonable middle path here. Damon, Alex. Wow. Okay, nothing. <laughs> so maybe we should pivot to uh, even more pain, which is uh, layoffs. How to do them and how not to do them. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, really quickly on the on the micro mobility side, because you've been tracking this more than probably the three of us. Like, what is the layoff situation with most most of these micro mobility companies right now? I mean, it's pretty deep. Yeah. Um, is 
you know, Lyme and bird, um, you know, any, it's not just within their staff itself, but then there's the whole gig, gig economy that has revolved around that. So, um, you know, I'll be interested to see how companies like Revel, which don't use gig workers, they have only full-time workers, right. um, end up compared to, and it's a moped, you know, not a, not a stand-up scooter. But I'm curious to see how those companies end up faring as opposed to, you know, the companies, the shared scooter companies that rely on um, gig workers as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's been it's been deep. Bird laid off a third. Lime in January laid off 14 percent. Right. Probably been more since. Yeah. So, yeah. It's we should get uh, Avery Ash from Inrix to come on and talk to us about what Inrix data is says about uh different cities because depending on the type of lockdown you may you you see very different patterns of what i want to call it, vestigial micromobility usage uh, well, and I, yeah. inrex um has released uh traffic patterns on roadways um not digging into as far as i know on on the scooter side uh or shared shared you know bike share uh side but draft traffic has absolutely been reduced. Uh, commuting traffic, they've they've uh, they've looked at, and it's dropped considerably in most major cities. I'd love to know what Celita Reynolds's position is on MDS this week, because that must be very valuable um, to have as granular a data set as you can in terms of planning for the future. Right. Right. Well, so I think that what we're we've talked about in the past few weeks and is continuing is we're starting to really see layoffs. What was happening initially was everyone was being furloughed. Um and now essentially from automakers to AV developers to scooter companies, they're now turning to their workers and saying, "Yeah, you should probably file for unemployment now." Um and so we saw that with, you know, even Tesla I got one of their leaked um, internal emails uh, last night. Uh, seems like those are. What leaked. does it say? <laughs> I wrote about it last night, but as as did many other reporters who now get their hands on on these uh, internal emails almost immediately. Basically, they're going to be laying off, um, or not laying off. Sorry, they're going to be furloughing um, all workers who have what's considered if they have a critical job that can be done on site, then they're good. If they are a um, worker who is unable to work from home, but also isn't critical enough to be on site, then they're furloughed. And then the big question is, how many of those are there? Right. Um, right. And manufacturing is not happening, right? So manufacturing. And so this is what I've been able to confirm. They're absolutely not manufacturing, although there are definitely some activity at the Lathrop facilities and some basic operations at Fremont. But it seems to be around like, some maintenance stuff, some parts, um, things related to service, but no assembly is happening. Uh, there's still like 2,000 workers at Fremont, but you know that's considerably less. Um, deliveries are still happening, um, albeit much a much much slower rate. And um, so then the other piece is. Salaried employees are going to see pay cuts, 30% for vice presidents, 20% for directors, 10% for everyone else. And they had never said when they were suspending production to, 
when they originally announced production suspension. And so now they've said at least till May 4th. So we're starting to get a clear picture. Tesla's not the only one. We all know that all the other auto manufacturers, which are mostly union shops, not all, but most, right. you know, they've, that the, these uh, communications were already put out to, to those folks weeks ago. Um, I believe that Honda and Nissan are now saying file unemployment, and that's impacting about 10,000 people. Wow. And then what's less clear is what's happening at the, uh, let's say, growth stage and early stage, uh, seed stage startups. Um, some are definitely on the AV developer side, definitely furloughing employees. Um, I know Waymo. We saw that with like Zooks this week, right? Yeah, Zooks. Zooks. Um, and Ed, you know more about that than I do. I know Waymo, the the um, the drivers are are not, at least in Arizona, they're paid through a um, fund, like a special Waymo COVID-19 fund until April 21st right now. Is that for contractors or is that... So through for the contractors. So those okay. are the drivers. Right. And right, then right. Uh, Waymo employees are also getting paid through um, the operations pause, um, but they're not being paid through that fund. They're being paid through, you know, just alphabet. Right, um, right. I don't know what's going on with some of the other AV developers. Um, yeah, the Verge, the Verge had a good report on Zooks, the situation. Um, and basically it, it's, it's a, uh, they say it's not a standard layoff, but it's basically unpaid furlough. But, you know, we hope to hire you once we get back on the road. Well, in Zooks's case, that might be convenient. Yeah. So Zooks, Zooks has been trying to raise money for a while. Um, when I visited them a few weeks back, I was super impressed by their tech. But but I did notice that their uh, their headquarters seemed a little bit or their main office building in San Francisco seemed a little bit understaffed. Um, you could tell that there had already been some belt tightening, I think, um, compared to other you know, bigger players anyway. Um, and uh, I have to imagine, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I've been very impressed by Zooks, but I, I think they're, they are in a very tough position right now. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm definitely curious to see what happens, but, but the broader issue here too, is just sort of, you know, this question of, of Silicon Valley companies relationship with, with their employees, um, which has been a big issue with the gig economy and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And, and we're seeing, you know, definitely some examples of, of what not to do uh, bird, Laying off people via Zoom webinar, uh, Velodyne and Lidar, I think, is being sued. Yeah, they're being sued. Right, um, mm-hmm. for cutting 140 jobs improperly with only one day's notice. So I guess it's, it's yeah. this is ex- yeah, so this is exposing um, you know some of these problematic relationships that that tech companies have with their employees, and um, this is definitely one of if you look at the traditional auto industry, there's you can see a contrast here because they're doing cuts as well, but it's like. The, the salary cuts at the at the mainstream automakers are all on the white collar side because they literally can't cut the union wages, right. um, and they they the, the union workers have protections in place that that are that are actually quite meaningful. Um, and you know, it's I guess that's one of the the big you know what's the world going to look like once this all dies down? Questions is like, is this going to precipitate a change in in tech companies' relationships with their workers? I, I I'm not sure I would bet on it, but yeah, probably possible. not. What are you hearing, Alex and Damon? Uh, I probably sh- I shouldn't comment on this because I'm too close to home, uh, given that I, I work for one of these companies. But I will say this. Um, I have always said there were going to be 
four or five big companies in the world building autonomous vehicles in it that were serious and the consolidations, I think three or four episodes ago, we just talked about this. Mm-hmm. Someone said it was going to take six months. I think it could take six weeks. I think you could, you're going to see some mergers real fast. Yeah. I think a lot of the, the kind of, um, what was considered to be what everybody thought was going to happen, which was that, you know, six month to 18 month kind of, you know, shake up is now accelerated way more dramatically. Um, but the thing I found really interesting and, and, and Kirsten, you might've seen some of this as well is like, there's still a lot of fundraising going on. Right. And it might not just be uh, in the, um, in the automated vehicle space and the, in the mobility space, but I'm really, really surprised just every day when I like look at pro rata or whatever, and just see all the different companies that are getting money right now. It's like, I'm really, really curious how far along these deals were, um, before the uh, before the COVID situation hit, um, and then how those terms might have changed in the process. I think that's going to be one of the more interesting things to come out of this is as everybody is desperate for money right now and a lot of these VC dollars are drying up, like the terms are going to get more and more onerous every Wait, did round you, now. David, did you, did you see these guys in England last week who raised a lot, a bunch of money? It wasn't billions, yeah. but it was it was a hundred million? something for an online car buying platform in the I UK. Did see that. Yeah. And the I guy and the, and the founder is like, yeah, I just thought of this in like 2018. Like I, I, I just, it just seems so <laughs> preposterous. Well, I mean, at, at the, at the risk of offending our, 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 our friends in the UK, like maybe not the biggest hotbed of innovation on the technology front well, there sometimes. Were, wait, so. what about wave AI? You don't, what is that? The all camera solution. You don't believe in that. I think all camera solutions are, uh, I think we've discussed this all before. camera. No, ra- the no radar, just <laughs> no all LIDAR, camera. No LIDAR, no nothing. Yeah. Just nothing. all cameras all the time. It's, it's. Mm. <laughs> well, I can't wait for all that hate mail from the UK. Hey, I'm it's very, I'm, very polite hate mail. So I'm going to throw out <laughs> something which is going to sound self-serving at first, but is not. Several Never. companies mm. that shall remain nameless because I'm a nice guy, but okay. several, at least one large autonomous vehicle developer, very well funded, may be backed by an OEM, cancel their internship program this week. And, um, and so... I'm not suggesting that Argo AI is hiring. What I am suggesting is that if you had an internship program that was canceled, there are still companies who are looking for interns whose programs are active. So why don't you contact the Atonicast and let us know um, if you have an internship program that is still active this summer so we can mention it and uh, in one of our upcoming episodes. Because there's a lot of folks out there who are going to be home who want to learn something this summer. And there are still companies doing remote internship programs, teaching skills. Um, the one that I may or may not work for is only one such company. Um, I'm yeah. sure there are others. Tell us who you are so we can pr- continue being an unbiased show. Okay. Amazing well, log. Well, room. I will add one little like. So is that fair? Is that okay? It, 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 it's right on the <laughs> edge there. That was on the boundaries, right? That's right on the edge. But okay. but here I will. Um, well, I will make one point. Um, which should balance the scales a bit more. Uh, canceling an internship program, um, any company who does that, it might also be a strategic reason so that they can continue to pay um, maybe many of their full-time employees who are not currently working and to cut back so that they don't have to lay those folks off. So 
let's, you know, I think that just in case it was sounding like Alex was putting a, a judgy, <laughs> we're better, you know, just in case, just in case, I'm just going to balance it out a bit and, and say that there's a, there are reasons why companies, I think, uh, freezing an internship program can be strategically short-sighted, but there's oftentimes a reason to do that. And on that nuanced bombshell, <laughs> we should call this a wrap. A wrap. <laughs> we'll see you next time on another episode of. Wait, Beer hold Talk on Cats. a minute. I have more self-serving stuff here. I think everyone should check out. If you, Alex has more if, self-serving if, material. If you Stop enjoy, the presses. If you enjoy the Atonic Cast, you're absolutely gonna love the No Parking Podcast. But if you don't like me, it's not the show for you. How about that? That that was actually that that, 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 that actually should be your iTunes. Uh, <laughs> right. yeah. If you don't like me, the show isn't for you. We'll see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs>